0: Before we get into this interesting story, I want to go ahead and establish a bit of a general context and time frame for the events of this second chapter. Matthew begins really by giving us a rather broad transition. He simply writes, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Well, Matthew doesn't give us any specifics. His description, though, in the passage of Jesus being a young child living in a house That was located in this ancient city of Bethlehem when wise men come from the east. It indicates that, again, Jesus is not a babe. He's a young child. He's not in a stable. He's in a a house. Roughly, somewhere between probably 12 to 18 months have transpired between the birth of Christ and this particular story or the close of chapter 1 and the opening of chapter 2. Now, we have no idea pertaining to the Christmas story how long Mary and Joseph with a little Jesus, hunkered down in this stable. According to Luke 2, we do know they had to have remained close. And we know that because they would take young Jesus to the temple to be circumcised on the eighth day. And then after that, they set enough time aside for Mary to fulfill some kind of odd things, some of these requirements for her purification, that were specified in Leviticus 12. If you take it all into account, they had to stay close, probably not in the stable, but they do stay close, probably remaining in Bethlehem for roughly 40 days or so. We can say that with, with, with certainty, and Bethlehem was a suburb of Jerusalem, so it was an easy place to kind of come in and out of the city as necessary. In Luke chapter 2, verse 39, we do read, Luke kind of transitions us. He says, So when they had performed all the things according to the law of the Lord, so Jesus' circumcision and Mary's purification, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. Now, admittedly, there, there are kind of two ways that you could kind of view the larger timeline of Jesus, the early years of Jesus. Option one is that a month or so after Mary and Joseph you know, finish up their, their dealings at Bethlehem, they return to Nazareth. Option one. And they probably find the situation, because of the, the scandal surrounding you know, Jesus' conception, they probably find it so unbearable that they leave. So they, they wrap up things in Bethlehem. They leave, go to Nazareth. It's not a great dynamic. So they decide, well, let's load up. Let's move to Beverly Hills. You know? So they load up the truck, and they make their way back down, and they, 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 they come back to Bethlehem. That's option one. Option two is that, is that Mary and Joseph realize the situation in Nazareth, and so they make the decision to remain in Bethlehem. The stable doesn't work for very long. They rent a house, a little condo. Uh, They don't return to Nazareth until much later. In fact, they they probably don't return to Nazareth until the events of this chapter, which would include a jaunt to Egypt, a return back to the, the region, and then they settle. So Jesus would probably be four or five years old. So there are two ways you can view the timeline, and admittedly, Both make sense, both don't contradict, and you can find scholars on either end of the the equation. I don't necessarily have an opinion because it doesn't matter. Now, diving into the second chapter, I should begin by explaining that, I mean, really, if we're being honest, you would be hard-pressed to find really a more mysterious group of individuals in all of the Bible than these wise men. In fact, what you might think you know of them is probably factually wrong. Like, for example, we assume that there were three wise men. And we make that assumption because of the three gifts that they presented to Jesus. But that's the only evidence we have of three. And a likelihood, because all of Jerusalem was worried along with Herod, there was an entourage. Like, Matthew actually doesn't specify how many of the wise men uh, come Seeking Jesus, common misconception. We three kings is not quite factual. Once more, you know, every Christmas nativity, you know, on on your mantle, December time, includes the wise men, you know, and a couple camels, gathered around the manger scene, along with the shepherds, right? And yet, that didn't happen. (laughs) Uh, That's not the scene. That's not the nativity scene. Again, as mentioned, um, a young child in a home is a very much different scene than a babe lying in a manger. And so uh, the Adams family, we like to be factually correct every uh, Christmas morning after we have breakfast. But before we open presents, we read the Christmas story. Jessica has this nice little nativity scene. uh, So the kids, the young ones, will act out the scene as we read through. Um, The actual night of Christ's birth, we put the wise men in the kitchen. Because that's where they are. They're about a thousand miles away. And so, you know, about June or July, we finally get them to to the manger. As you transition from the birth of Christ to this account, let's be real, questions do abound. Like, there are a lot more questions that you have Getting into this chapter, then answers at least initially, like who, who are the wise men? Where did they come from? Why would foreigners care that a king of the Jews had been born? Yet alone want to come and worship him? It's bizarre. And and how do they know to look for a star? What's the deal with the star? Like how does this particular star indicate that such an important birth had taken place? And aside from this. Like, why are the wise men so late to the party? Why, why don't they know to look in the town of, of Bethlehem and instead have this layover in Jerusalem to gain further direction? Faulty star? Bad GPS? Drop the signal? I don't know. Like, and if, Again, you can understand maybe how a gift of gold would be appropriate for a king. But why give a baby frankincense which was a a a spice that was primarily used in the temple sacrifices and not only that but myrrh why would you give a baby myrrh i mean it would be like me visiting you in the hospital with your newborn and bringing embalming fluid be like there's a gift your kid's gonna die like kind of morbid again really like questions really abound As you get to the story, as you read through the text. Now, as we work to answer these particular questions, let's begin by just kind of establishing what we do know for sure from the text itself. Uh, First, Matthew writes in verse 1, look at it, very, very specific. He says, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, in the Greek, this word that we have for wise men, is magos, which can be translated as magi. And what's interesting about this word is that Matthew's account here is not the first time you have encountered magi if you've been reading through the Scriptures, been reading through the Bible. Now, historically, magi, that that word, it was a title uh, given in the Orient, in the East. Within the Scriptures, the word is used often and is used to describe men with all kinds of of roles and positions within pagan governmental societies. A magi could be a teacher, a priest, a physician, an astrologer, a seer, a soothsayer, even a sorcerer. To this point in Genesis 41, and again in Exodus 7, magi, this term, is used to describe the counselors of the Egyptian pharaoh. They were called magi. And the story of Queen Esther Magi once again denoted the advisors of the Persian king. In the book of Daniel, you'll even come to discover that wise men, the magi, were part of King Nebuchadnezzar's inner circle of confidants. Contextually, we're told that that wise men come, but note, where do they come from? They come from the east, which tells us something. It tells us these are not magi coming from Egypt, which was due south. It tells us that more than likely, at least from a biblical context, the Magi are coming, yes, from the east, but more than likely the remnants of the Babylonian and Persian empires. Now, the next thing we know about these wise men from the text is that they came with a purpose, right? What was the purpose? They came searching for a newborn king of the Jews. Now, though it's, it's very improbable, that these men were Jewish themselves. Possible, but improbable. More than likely, they're Gentiles. It is obvious either way that these men possess, somehow, some way, some type of Hebrew religious heritage or understanding. I mean, they're looking for a king of the Jews. Because of the very nature of their quest, the wise men, again, somehow, some way, had come to some simple understandings. That yes, there would be a, a Jewish king born, but that king of the Jews would be significant. Not just to Israel, but to the entire world. They understood that. In fact, it's the only way to explain why these men would travel a thousand miles through tough desert terrain to find him. Lastly, Matthew tells us that these men came because, well, they had seen his star in the east and wanted to worship him. Now, while it would have been completely customary, in fact, pretty normal for another nation, a foreign nation, to send a delegation to pay homage you know, when a son was born to, to another king. like That would be a normal thing. You, know, you hear that the, the Edomites, that the king has a son, so you send some, an entourage, a delegation with some gifts to pay homage, to pay respect, trying to build alliances and whatnot. So that's not abnormal. But the text tells us the wise men don't come to just pay homage. Their intention is much, much deeper, right? They came to worship. And this word worship, it indicates that they came, not to pay respect, but intending to bow their knee in an act of submission, as an act of expression. It was was an act of profound reverence. Like really, the scene would have been odd. These wise men coming in to this little house and bending their knee in worship of a newborn king. Now with all of this in mind, two logical questions do arise. First, what would motivate a group of pagan wise men from the east to set upon a difficult journey in order to find this newborn king? What would be their motivation? And secondly, how does a star indicate the timing of the journey? So those are the two questions that remain. Now, the the, the text is kind of mum to the question. But I do think in describing these men as wise men from the East, Matthew is giving, again, a Jewish audience, which is to whom he's writing, a logical clue. You see, in in order to effectively understand the wise men and to answer these questions, you have to rewind the clock a little bit. In fact, you've got to rewind the clock about 500 years to a Jewish prophet living in Babylon, a man by the name of Daniel. And, And I'll give you just some quick context. Following an elongated season of rebellion by the Jewish people, God decided to use the Babylonian Empire to judge the southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem is sacked the temple is destroyed the hebrew people are taken into exile a collection of the brightest young men of israel are taken captive back to babylon to serve the king one of these young men is daniel and daniel is deeply worried in fact he's grown very concerned that because of their sin because of their rebellion because of the things that they had been doing leading to this moment where god judges them in such a way that maybe their privilege their right they're standing as the people of god has been vacated. He's worried about that. And the implications were great. And because of that, to calm his fears, God, he allows Daniel to peer into the future for a reason. He wants Daniel to understand that not only did God still have a plan for the people of Israel, but as part of that plan, the long-promised Savior, the King of the Jews, would present himself. And within these prophecies, he pinpoints the exact day in which the Messiah would present himself. According to the Daniel 9, 70 weeks prophecy, exactly 483 years from this future decree given to restore and build Jerusalem, Messiah the Prince would present himself. So David receives this incredible revelation. Now, what makes that prophecy relevant to Matthew 2 is that just a few years later, from Daniel receiving this vision. On March 14th, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes of Persia issued that very decree. He allowed the Jews to go back to restore and build Jerusalem, meaning that any student of Scripture, anyone that was astute enough to just read Daniel, would have known the very day Messiah the King was going to reveal himself to Israel. He could have pinpointed it. 483 years from March 14th, 445 B.C. Now this is where things, in my mind, get particularly interesting. While Daniel would receive from God prophetic insights concerning the future arrival of the king, Daniel and some of his buddies, his three amigos, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would become such men of integrity, such well-intentioned, Uh, their character was seen. They become very trusted advisors, valuable advisors, not just to King Nebuchadnezzar, but some of the Babylonian kings to follow, even down into Darius and then the Persians. They remained valuable. In fact, in Daniel 2, verse 48, this is what we read. We're told that the king promoted Daniel and gave to him many great gifts and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator, note, Over all the wise men. Magi, same word, of Babylon. (laughs) Wait a second. Daniel, this prophet with so much insight into the coming Messiah, this coming king, is placed over the wise men? That can't be a coincidence, right? I mean, think about it. Since prophetically Daniel knew when the Christ when Jesus was going to reveal himself, is it elite to believe that such a brilliant man as Daniel was could have re, like reverse-engineered the timeline to roughly approximate the time of Jesus' birth? Is that irrational? Not at all. Additionally, because one of the great areas of expertise considering the order of Magi was astrology, is it beyond reason that Daniel could have also been able to designate the the movements of a particular star that would not only position itself in such a dramatic way to indicate a king had been born, but to also serve, as stars did, as a navigational tool to find the location. Like, Don't forget, the wise men tell Herod what? We have seen his star in the east. Considering that Daniel had been placed in charge of the Magi by the Babylonian king, is it far-fetched? to believe that he may have established a sect or an order of the wise men charging them with very specific instructions that guys, when you see this star line up in a certain place in the night sky, you're to go and present this newborn king these gifts. I know it doesn't make any sense. It will to him. Now, not only am I convinced that apart from Daniel's involvement, the wise men's appearance makes no sense at all. This particular scenario, it explains, doesn't it? why they arrive late, and why they present gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. While Daniel knew with pinpoint accuracy when Jesus would present himself to Israel as their king, he didn't know how old Jesus would be. As a result, Daniel's only really left to speculate, approximate a date of Christ's birth. Aside from this, if left to themselves, the wise men would never have brought these gifts. The exception of gold... The other two are strange to give to a baby. And yet, for Daniel, as one of the most Christ-centric of all the Old Testament prophets, he would have understood and had a broader understanding. These gifts being given by Daniel make sense. You see, Daniel knew the Messiah would be a king, which explains the gift of gold. But he also knew that the Messiah would be God. God was to be worshipped, which explains the frankincense, and according to the same 70 weeks prophecy recorded in Daniel 9, Daniel knew, he was keenly aware, that this future king, the God-man, would die for the sins of his people, which explains the gift of myrrh. Though Daniel's involvement, I believe, answers a lot of questions about this story, there is one question, though, that remains. Notice that while Matthew begins by telling us that it was a star that led the wise men from the east to Judea. Do you notice something happened? So these men load up, get their camels, they're going across the desert, and they're getting close to the destination, right? They're following the star. There's a particular calculation. And yet the closer and closer they get, something bizarre happens. Look again at verse 9. We read that after the wise men leave King Herod, Matthew says, Behold the star which they had seen. Past tense. And the east now goes before them. Present tense. Till it came and stood over where the young child was. It would appear, again from the text, that the wise men, as they inch closer and closer and closer to the destination, again, Judea, the region of Judea, we know the location would be Bethlehem, but they get close, the star, what happens? It disappears. It vanishes. And so losing their only source of navigation... They do the logical thing, right? Well, we're close. What city would be the the right place to look? Well, we'll go to the capital. We'll go to Jerusalem. And we're looking for a king of the Jews, so we'll find King Herod. Again, all this making sense. See, as far as they knew, King Herod would have been in the know concerning a newborn king. In fact, once the religious leaders were subsequently consulted, and then the wise men leave Jerusalem, what happens? The star reappears. So the star disappears, and then it reappears, which is very interesting to me. In fact, I think it's that subtle point that explains why Matthew includes this story in his gospel. Though Daniel had made the necessary arrangements for the wise men to go directly to Jesus, I believe that God intervened, and he did so by temporarily hiding this star for one purpose. To get the wise men to make a detour to Jerusalem first. And I think that's important. But like clearly, we'd have to consider why God would do that. And not only that, but why include King Herod of all people in the narrative? Herod the Great, as he's known historically, was an Edomite by birth who had been granted the title, King of Judea, by the Roman Senate. This was a title that was later confirmed by Caesar Augustus. What makes Herod such a fascinating character is that aside from sadistic tendencies and an incredibly small stature, he was four foot something or another, Herod was weirdly, oddly, strangely religious, especially for a brutal tyrant. Approximately 50 years before Herod's birth, a Jewish man by the name of John Maccabeus conquered the area of Edom. And he required that all of the Edomites had one of two choices to make. You either leave or you convert to Judaism. That meant that anyone that stayed, any Edomite that stayed, which included Herod's family, had to convert, which included being circumcised and adhering to the Jewish laws and customs beyond developing and maintaining a good report with the Jews that were living under his control, because he was a proselyte, Herod the Great. He had a deep longing to be accepted by the religious establishment. Herod the Great wanted to be accepted by the Jews. Not only does the first century historian Josephus confirm this in his records of the histories of this time, but it explains why Herod would spend so much time energy and effort renovating the temple in Jerusalem. It would become known as Herod's Temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. As you can imagine, Herod, a guy like Herod, he relished, cherished the position of king. He enjoyed the power, the prestige that came with it, so much so that he was, he, he was notorious for any threats. He, he killed off one wife. He killed off three sons. Anybody that was perceived to be a threat Herod killed him off. In fact, in the day, it was said that it was safer to be a a pig living in Jerusalem than it was a son of Herod. Herod was brutal. With that in mind, we can understand, like you 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 can play it out in your mind, at how a man like Herod would have been deeply alarmed by a group of foreign dignitaries. And again, don't think of them as just being three of them. Think of it as a posse, an entourage, a crew. Dignitaries coming with their servants and and these gifts and all of the food for the journey. I mean, this is a massive crew of people. There's Herod, and they're looking for the king of the Jews. Again, you can understand why Herod's a little geeked out and why then all of Jerusalem is upset too. A newborn king of the Jews. And this idea of it being a newborn king would have alarmed Herod even more, Because he's an Edomite. He is not in the bloodline. You see, a born king of the Jewish people was the ultimate threat for Herod. A born king would have possessed a rightful claim when he didn't have one, could have taken the throne by force, amassed power. A born king of the Jews would have undermined any type of goodwill or standing he had within the Jewish community. Now one of the things I find fascinating about the story is that Matthew tells us, yes, Herod was alarmed, very much so. But notice, Herod didn't brush off the inquiry of the wise men. Instead, Herod the Great had the acumen to take it very seriously. In addition to all of Jerusalem being on edge, Matthew says that he gathered all of the, the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, and he asked them, he inquired, where the Christ, the Messiah, uses this messianic term, was to be born. And really kind of a strange twist. Like this very question indicates that they're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. But Herod has taken it a step further. Herod actually understands, in light of the Messianic prophecies, that at this point in history, such a group of people looking for a newborn king of the Jews in light of everything going on, that newborn king of the Jews would more than likely, according to Herod's estimation, again, no theologian, would have been the Christ. They're looking for a newborn king Herod comes and what's his question? Where's the Christ to be born? Like that's who I'm really concerned about. The Christ, the Messiah. Now, he goes to the religious leaders. Logical place to go. Chief priests, the scribes, the lawyers, the experts of the law. They consult with the Old Testament. The prophecies they land, the prophecies of Micah. And they return to Herod and they give him an answer. They say, yeah, you want to know where he's going to be born, the Messiah, in Bethlehem? of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and they give their justification, their evidence, their proof. Now, look again at the larger progression of our text, because I I, want to emphasize something. The star indicating the birth of the king of the Jews leads the wise men to Judea. Then it disappears. Not sure what to do, the wise men go to Jerusalem. Happens to be the wrong location but they go there to consult with Herod. Concerned that this crew of foreign dignitaries have come looking for a newborn king, which would be a big threat to him, Herod turns to the religious leaders of the day, seeking some kind of answer. Those men now consult with the scriptures. The chief priests, the cohorts of scribes come back, and they're like, Herod, well, it says in Micah, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Upon sharing that detail with Herod, Herod turns, gives that detail to the wise men. He sends them on their way. And incredibly, the star now reappears, leading the men not just into the city of Bethlehem, but to the very house in which Jesus was living. Interesting. To unpack the larger point of the story, why Matthew includes this in his gospel, you need to first understand what the wise men, Herod the Great, and the religious leaders all have in common. Because they, there is a, a central commonality of these characters within our story. None of them were present for Jesus' birth. None of them were there. And, and related to that, none of them had been informed what was going on through an angelic pronouncement. Which is, which is significant. right? How, did Mary, how was Mary informed what was going on? Angel. How was Joseph informed what was going on? Angel. How were the shepherds informed what was going on? An angelic host of the highest, right? A big choir in the sky. Angels. Not so with these guys. You see, the wise men, Herod, the religious leaders, all three, receive a measure of revelation that the king had been born And they all received that revelation after the fact. The wise men knew a king had been born because of a star that initiates their journey. King Herod knew something was up because of the alarming presence of the wise men who are lost. The religious leaders are brought into the loop because of the inquiry of Herod. In the end, everyone involved knew where to look to confirm or deny whether a king had been born because of the revelation provided where? And God's word, the scriptures. So let's get back to the larger question as to why God orchestrated this detour to Jerusalem. Stars bringing them into the land. They get close, star disappears. They go to Herod. They go to the religious leaders, get instruction. As they leave, star reappears. So why the detour? Why would God do that? Now, from my perspective, The only plausible conclusion you can reach as to why the star disappeared is that God, in His ultimate sovereignty, intentionally led the wise men to Jerusalem so that the religious leaders, in addition to King Herod, would also know that the Messiah had been born and was in Bethlehem. Which has an interesting implication. It means that God, in His providence, was inviting these men to also come and worship the newborn King of the Jews to encounter Jesus for themselves. Now, before we close, by kind of centering back onto the wise men and their experience, Herod's reaction to the news of Jesus' birth should really come as no surprise. Matthew tells us Herod instructs the wise men to bring back word to him, right? You guys go, you worship, you come let me know where he is. Why? Because I want to go worship him also. It's a false pretense. We'll look at this next Sunday. Herod's intentions are totally evil. And yet, to me, it's the reaction of the religious leaders to the things that are happening here that's absolutely shocking. Like, you have a group... A large group of wise men who traveled a thousand miles from the east. They show up on your doorstep in search of a king prophesied generationally for a thousand years from your holy scriptures claiming he had been born. They show up. Where is he? You ask how they knew what they knew. And they kind of give you this tale of a star appearing and disappearing. Okay. Prompted by King Herod, who clearly sees the 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 situation as being true enough to be concerned, instructs you. Like the star thing seems weird. These people come and seems odd. Okay, well you go to the you actually go to the scriptures. You're like, well let's pull out the scrolls and you're rolling them up. You're doing some word studies. Like the king wants to know, we need an explanation. The star seems like an odd story. Let's get to the bottom of it. So you actually go to the scriptures and you're like, oh, well, that's easy. Like Bethlehem, which is like two miles outside of the city, is going to be where the Messiah would be born. So you pass along that information to Herod, who then passes along that information to the wise men, who then are like, cool, thanks for the tip. And they promptly depart and head south via your instructions. I mean, seriously, it is beyond the pale that not one of these religious men are even remotely curious enough by what's happened to tag along with the wise men to see if just maybe the king had really been born. I mean, their their actions defy reason and are simply unexplainable. But keep in mind that Matthew's entire point in writing is to prove that Jesus, who those religious leaders had rejected, was the king who had been promised to their forefathers and prophesied about in the Scriptures. That's his job, his intention, his motivation in writing. In fact, Matthew, as a Levite, his name Levi, and member of the priestly class himself, He's letting the world know that God had gone out of His way to make sure the birth of Christ had been revealed to the religious establishment, making their inaction inexcusable and flat-out scandalous. Just for a moment. Imagine you're a Hebrew and you're reading Matthew's Gospel for the very first time. In fact, in reading Matthew's gospel for the very first time, this story that we just read in the second chapter, this is the first time you have ever heard about this story. According to Matthew, these religious leaders, men that you have trusted your entire life, men that you kind of followed when they were like, yeah, Jesus isn't the Messiah, men that rejected Jesus, and you're like, well, they're the religious establishment. I mean, I should probably go. I mean, they're the experts. Trust the experts. I'm going to trust the experts. So you're reading this story about the experts, men you've trusted your entire life, men you've placed your faith into, and then you hit it. You read it, and you're like, these guys did nothing with the obvious revelation that they'd been given, that the Christ had been born? I mean, I mean, How could that even be? Like no investigation at all? You're not even curious? Nothing? Like it would be a shock to your system. Guys, you had one job. We've been waiting thousands of years for the king. you got wise men coming from the east. They're like, yeah, we're here looking for the newborn king. We saw a star. And then you go to the scriptures and you're like, yeah, he's in Bethlehem. And you don't do anything? Like, your job is to be looking out for the Messiah. And you're like, yeah, not really interested, not curious. Doesn't really meet, meet a threshold. What? And it's not only, it's like, like you could take an Uber. Like, it's in Bethlehem. It's not like, yeah, you got to go to Rome or some some other place or you got to go down to the Dead Sea. It's Bethlehem. Like, it's a half a day walk. <laughs> I mean, what are you doing? Not even curious. Not only that, but the way that Matthew presents it is that you'd have to also be a bit insulted. Like in contrast to the religious leaders, like it actually ends up being a crew of foreign pagan Gentile magi from ancient Babylon who took your scriptures seriously enough to come honor and worship the king your king, the king of the Jews, when you're sitting at home on your couch eating Cheetos. Like, yes, as you're sitting there, the religious men had rejected Jesus. But it's in this moment that you're sitting there wondering, if you're reading this story for the first time, have you ever been getting the truth from these guys? Bingo. That's the entire point of the story. That's the entire point of the story. Now, before we wrap things up, I'm going to leave you with three truths that you can chew on over the next week. Three things that you can take from the story, from application. First, one of the things I love about the story is that I mean, it's a perfect illustration to the fact that there's no one, no one at all, beyond the reach of God. No one is. Whether it be a group of like Eastern astrologers living in some temple on some perch in the Himalayas. You know God can reach that person? God can reveal Himself to that person? Like, there's no one. Like, a group of Eastern astrologers, God reached. Yes, they were left with vague instructions by a prophet named Daniel, but God reached them. With a star. He met them where they were at. They were astrologers. But he wanted to reveal his son Jesus to them. (laughs) Whether it's a group of corrupt leaders. Religious leaders. Everyone. As this story illustrates. Everyone. Is invited to come. And to experience a life changing encounter with Jesus. Yes. Most shockingly even a very wicked king named Herod was given the invitation. <clears throat> Secondly, as we see with these religious men, you know, it's entirely possible. And I think this is a good warning. It's entirely possible to know the written word without ever coming to know the living word. You know, what's interesting is reading in studying the Bible it can facilitate both aims you know if you don't know Jesus time in the scriptures will indeed deepen your knowledge of Jesus that said though if you know Jesus the same amount of time in scripture ends up facilitating something beyond knowledge It facilitates an experience that you have with him. And the difference between gaining knowledge and gaining the depth of experience. The difference between the knowledge of Jesus and growing to know Jesus through the study of his word. What separates the two exercises is simple. It's whether or not you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Lastly, it's been correctly stated that knowledge... Knowledge is of no value unless you put it into practice. You see, what the story illustrates is what you know, knowledge, is not nearly as important as what you do with what you know. By the way, that's also the definition of wisdom, knowledge and practice brought a thousand miles west to a foreign land by the appearing of a star associated with a legend that it would coincide with the birth of an important king which then would necessitate the presentation of these three strange gifts a legend that was started by a hebrew prophet 500 years earlier only to be passed down through successive generations of wise men Then equipped, following a detour with a general location, revealed in Scripture, Scriptures you can't read or understand, that was then more specifically honed in now by the stars reappearing, which you're thankful for. The wise men don't have much to go on, do they? Not much at all. And what do they do? They had a little knowledge. But they had a big faith. And they acted on what they knew. And what resulted, Matthew says, they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped, and they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. My friend, the only possible explanation that you can muster to explain the actions of these wise men, the only way it makes sense at all, is that they genuinely believed that a king had been born worthy of their worship. You see, their little knowledge yielded a big act of faith, which resulted in a life-changing, life-transforming, life-altering encounter with, yes, the King of the Jews, Jesus the Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said, As I like to do, quoting David Guzik, quoting Charles Spurgeon. Those who look for Jesus will see Him. Those who truly see Him will worship Him. Those who worship Him will consecrate their substance to Him. They sought, they worshipped, and then their worship manifested in gifts. You now when I consider the contrast between the wise men and these religious leaders, as I was studying this passage, I just kind of kept coming back and coming back and coming back. To what we read in James chapter 1, verse 22. When we as Christians are warned to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. You see, what differentiates a wise man from a fool is not the amount of revelation that one receives, but what a person does with the revelation they've been given. The the religious leaders, they knew the Scriptures. They had the testimony of these foreigners. Yet they failed to do anything. And in turn... They miss their moment. And in the end, they're considered to be fools. And yet in contrast, this entourage from the East, incredibly acted by faith on what little they knew, and in turn encountered Jesus. And in the end, we have referred to them throughout the centuries as what? Wise men. you want to be a fool or do you want to be wise? The simple question. It's not what you know, it's what are you going to do with what you know. Like, what are you going to do with what you do know about Jesus? You might have questions about this, questions about that, but let's center on what you do know. What are you doing with it? What kind of impact is it making? Will you act on it or do nothing at all? What will you do with what you know? And I promise you that if you act on what you know, it will lead you to the discovery of the one person ever born to this world that can change your life forever. His name is Jesus. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for this cool story